Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We acknowledge that you are our God. You care for us. And we thank you that you have made it possible that by our faith in you, your provision, we can be ready when that day comes. We thank you that we have your word. The revelation of who you are has been made available to us. We can read it and understand it. I pray again this morning that you give us the ability to hear from your word, to hear what it is saying to us, and especially bless Brother John as he brings this message, that he'd be able to share what you have laid upon his heart, share it clearly, give him a mind to, to think and to expound upon your word, and that we could live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a day we're all looking forward to, I trust, um, for various reasons. I want to welcome you all this morning, especially the visitors. I see there's lots of visitors here this morning, so for whatever reason brought you here, we welcome you here, invite you to worship with us this morning. I want to continue this morning um, in following uh, kind of a bit of a series I've been doing. I'll try and bring some of you guys up to speed on that. Uh, the progression of God's people through the Bible, um, through the Old Testament, New Testament, and focusing again on what made them different from the others around them. And as Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, God didn't choose them because they were greater than those around them, but because he loved them and wanted to display his power and greatness through them. So God didn't, cho God didn't choose the Israelites because they were an awesome people, um, as we know, they were not an awesome people, but he chose them because he used them to display himself. And as is always my goal, while we study the Bible, um, we can learn about the well-known accounts, about the more obscure accounts. We can become very familiar with the content, with the overall timeline. But unless we can learn the truths of the Bible and apply them to our lives, it's just pretty much an academic study. So the goal, as always, is to um, learn from the different characters, different accounts, um, put ourselves in their shoes. How would I have responded in that situation? Would I have learned the same lessons? And would my life have been changed as theirs was? And maybe would I like the next 2,000 years of people to read about my choices in life? Maybe not. So it's only as the Bible becomes personal does it start having an effect on my life. James 1, 22-25 talks about not just being a hearer of the word, but also a doer. Use the illustration of someone looking at the reflection in a mirror, in a glass, as it says. Now, most of us have mirrors in our houses. And uh, what is the purpose of these mirrors? They just remind us how good-looking we are. Uh, Jim, this morning we looked in the mirror, you said, wow, you know, it just gets better every day here. <laughs> is that the case, Jim? Okay. <laughs> That's great. Not all of us are that fortunate. Um, most of us look in the mirror for the purpose of becoming better. Whether we're washing our face, we're combing our hair, um, checking our teeth, or just straightening our clothes up or something, our goal is to walk away from that mirror a better person. So it should be the same way when we look in the Word of God, we should walk away um, after having examined our lives and become a better person because of that. So in the last two sermons, I attempted to cover approximately 4,000 years of Old Testament history, 
We followed the progression of God's people from the time He created them, and then He chose them as His special people, and then promised them an eternal future if they followed and obeyed Him. And sadly, they did not always do that. We also saw where God brought hardships in their lives in an attempt to direct them back to Him. And also as a, an underlying um, secondary theme, we looked at how God preserved them as His special people. We talked about separation versus salt. Uh, both of those are a means of preservation. And uh, separation was largely used as a means of preserving God's people in the Old Testament. And while that method never completely disappeared in the New Testament, um, it is largely replaced by a new method, that of being salt and light to those around us. God is calling that to us in the New Testament. So I ended with the birth of Christ and a light that dawned in the darkness of the world at that time, a light that shone in a void that men had attempted to fill with religion. Into that darkness stepped the one who is light himself. As I read last time, the first chapter of the Gospel of John describes Jesus as the only source of true light for anyone who ever has or ever will live. And if darkness, as we know, is simply the absence of light, then Jesus is the only true light able to fully replace that darkness, able to fully fill that darkness. As we know the story, Jesus entered the world with a very humble beginning, born in a stable in a city far from his parents' homeland, and welcomed only by a small group of probably smelly shepherds, um, the lowest of the low as considered in those days, and different thoughts on who exactly those shepherds might have been, obviously could have been men, there's also some thoughts that the shepherds could have been teenagers, even teenage girls. Uh, sometimes I understood did shepherd duty in those days. So I don't know what that group looked like that welcomed him, but it certainly wasn't the kings. His early life had some drama. He was visited by royalty from a far-off land. He caused King Herod a few sleepless nights, and he and his parents took a quick and unplanned trip to Egypt. So his childhood was kind of eventful, but then they returned, and except for that little incident there in the temple, um, he appears to have had a fairly normal childhood, living and learning from his parents and his siblings, living as a, I think it says, I didn't look it up, but he, he was subject to them, I think it says. Um, he obeyed his parents. He was one of, their, one of their children there. And I know there's different schools of thought about whether, about whether Jesus fully realized who he was from the moment he was born. Um, was he a perfect child? compared to his brothers and sisters, or was he naughty? Did he receive discipline as well? That we don't know. I don't have an answer, um, but I found it interesting looking in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist greets Jesus for the first time. If you want to, turn to John chapter 1, reading in verse 29 through 34. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed in Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. 
So John was busy baptizing people, and in his own words, he quoted prophecies saying he was preparing the way for the Messiah. So John had a very singular purpose in life, and that was to point others to the coming Messiah, who, if we go back a few verse, few verses, he says, he already stands among you. John knew the Messiah was already there at that point. And John was the last prophet to foretell the, the Messiah's arrival. But unlike the ones before him, he knew that the time of the Messiah's appearing would be days or months, not centuries, not years, like the other prophets before him. And John had been given a sign by God to identify this Messiah. And the sign was that God's Spirit <coughs> would descend from heaven in the form of a dove and signify who that man was. I find it interesting in this passage here, John says he did not know Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, John and Jesus were cousins of one form or another, and their, mother, their mothers had, we know, met while they were both expecting them, they were both pregnant with them, and Mary and Elizabeth both knew they were carrying special babies. And I have to wonder, did they discuss this, or did they find the subject difficult to discuss even among themselves? I don't know that. Um, I don't know what all they discussed when Mary went to visit Elizabeth. If they knew enough, said enough to know they were both carrying um, the Messiah and his forerunner or not. And then later on, did John Jesus ever meet at family get-togethers? Did they, you know, growing up, um, I assume they probably met, they were somewhat family. Or were their respective callings not that obvious to them as young boys? Again, don't know. Interesting questions to ask them someday. But John's statement here combined with the dove would make me think that possibly this point here that we're reading about is when Jesus became, if I may say, uh, fully activated as God. I don't know. Um, his humanity continued. He was still fully God, fully man. But the God side of him that might have been somewhat dormant during his childhood with the arrival of God's Spirit as the dove here, now became uh, fully alive as he was filled with God's Spirit and preparing to go into his ministry there. So I don't know. I know there's different thoughts on that. Um, if you have any discussion or disagreement, please see me afterwards. But interesting, interesting there in that, I didn't really see that before, but John says, I don't know who he is. And why didn't he know? And maybe that was because it simply wasn't that obvious before that. Immediately after that, Jesus began calling his disciples, and his time of ministry here on the earth began. There's obviously many, many aspects of his time here that we could look at, um, could fill many sermons with that. But in keeping with the theme of the progression of God leading his people, I would like to look at Matthew 5, and particularly at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. I'm going to be referring a bit to the entire chapter, but not doing a lot of reading. But in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus is talking here, and he is saying, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus would, during his time here, introduce a lot of revolutionary teaching in his ministry. Um, some merely took their, the law they were used to, took it to the next level, but some overturned that law entirely, overturned their ideas, I should say, entirely. In a sense, they did have a right to be alarmed, possibly, um, accepting change without a certain degree of skepticism is a good way to find yourself a great distance from where you wanted to be. But Jesus is very careful here to explain that he is not destroying or dismissing or even denying the way they have been taught for many thousands of years. Instead, he is simply showing them a fulfillment of that way. And he will be showing them what that way had been preparing them for in all those years. and what that way had been preparing them for from the day that it was introduced. So this is now the next step in the journey of God's people. Um, God is asking people to follow them, and through Jesus here, he's asking them to follow them into the next step of that journey. Take another step from what feels comfortable. That's always difficult, and I think especially for them, uh, a people who had been very used to what they had done, were very comfortable, the... Um, perimeters, the, the laws, the guardrails were very clearly defined, and now Jesus is saying, let's take another step beyond that, uh, towards more personal responsibility, but also then more opportunity, <coughs> and primarily more ways to show God, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to show God to those who did not yet know him. God's desire has always been that no one should perish, but that all should come to know him. And to that end, Jesus begins with a series of, as my title says, it has been said, but I say unto you. <clears throat> so both in an effort to guide them ahead, but also to bring them back on course to what God had originally planned for them when he gave them those laws many, many years ago. So when God gave the law as we call it, as they call it, gave the law to Moses many years before, he had two primary objectives. And the first was to show the people that he was the one and only true God. And the second was to keep the people pure and holy so their lives would be different from those around them. And as a result, then bring glory to God as well. Now, the law did very well at this. Uh, many sacrifices, rituals that God required, along with the miracles he did during the Exodus, uh, proved both to his people as well as to those around them, that God was who he said he was. But the New Testament, God had an even greater plan. He sent his son to earth in the form of a human, not just to die for our sins, the mankind, but also to spend over three years teaching and preaching in person the ways of God. In Jesus' day, and not so far in the past here, if you wanted to communicate with someone, you sent them a letter. And today we have multiple ways to communicate from a distance, um, we can text someone, we can email them. Uh, there's a dozen or more social media apps that are ways of communicating without seeing a person face-to-face. -face. But I'm still kind of old school. I feel there's something missing with these. And that is the ability to accurately communicate with expression and attitude um, in what you're saying to a person. And then also being able to see that person's expression in return. A much better way of communicating than trying to text. And uh, emojis do, do not fill that gap. I'm sorry, they don't. Um, so God's plan, New Testament, not just to have his people follow his law,
but he wanted to share with others in a way that felt like they had met him as well. In doing that, he came as a person, and he taught literally one-on-one. He taught to crowds, and God's Son walked directly and talked directly with man, who then recorded his words, as we have here, for us as future believers to then follow. So early in the ministry, he sat down with his disciples and a large group of people, and he gave them the three chapters in Matthew, 5, 6, and 7, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he uses saying, oh, probably about a half a dozen times, you have heard it was said by those of old time, or what was handed down to you through the years, through your traditions, but instead I say unto you, and then would proceed to correct or enlarge on that thought. And he addresses murder, adultery, divorce, uh, swearing of oaths, uh, retaliation to wrongdoing, and loving your neighbors and your enemies. Now, I won't look at them all individually because that could be a study in and of itself. But for each one, Jesus says it's not just what happens on the outside, but it's what's in your heart that is more important. So hating your brother is just as bad as murdering him. Uh, swearing oaths isn't necessary if one always tells the truth, and we go on down the list there. But that's the idea. Um, but I think in one sense, this entire sermon could be possibly entitled, but... I say unto you. Uh, Jesus is introducing a radical new way of living. And if we look at the nine blesseds in the first 11 verses, um, each describe a person quite different than a typical successful Old Testament character. No longer was a man standing with God judged by the amount of material wealth he had. We know in the Old Testament, the more sheep you had, the better God loved you. Thankfully, that's not the case anymore because I don't like sheep. Um... Instead, they are going to inherit a place in God's eternal kingdom. And no longer are they to just simply wipe out their enemies, but instead to love them, to show mercy to them, to be peacemakers. That was not something that was really emphasized that much in the Old Testament, the idea of being peacemakers. He teaches to judge, not to judge others harshly, to turn the other cheek when someone wrongs you, and to expect opposition when you do the right thing. And that opposition can come in multiple ways. Um, Sometimes, even unfortunately, it can come from those very close to you, those that you think would be, should be supporting, and instead they offer opposition. He teaches how to pray, how to relate to God as a father, and not just to some far-off deity, as he did in the Old Testament, how to ask from God, how to request from God, how to seek his will, and how to listen and to follow him. He teaches about the proper use of money, how to plan for the future, trusting and not to worry, and also to build on solid truth and not on shifting ideas. He uses the, the word picture of rock and sand there, and the, the obvious way um, of how a rock is going to hold us, but sand will move out from under us. Maybe most importantly, he teaches them that this is not just for them, No longer are they the exclusive recipients of God's blessing. They have been blessed so they can then in turn bless others. They are to share what they have been given to the benefit of others. And verse uh, um, 13 through 16 in chapter 5 call for a very different way of living than the separation that they had known for so many generations.
verse 13 through 16. I'll read that here. Chapter 5, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its flavor. How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a light and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I spoke a few times ago about salt separation, both being means of preservation, and we obviously discussed separation somewhat at length, and the time and purpose that God had used separation. Um, but I say unto you, said Jesus here, here's a new way. You are no longer called to simply preserve yourselves. Your responsibility now includes others around you. Neither salt nor light benefit themselves. Uh, the purpose of both of them is to influence others. A container of salt does nothing for itself. Um, the light does nothing for itself. They're both to fill a need. And he says here that a light under a basket helps no one. Um, it's just simply a waste. Uh, parents, how many of you have to remind your children, turn off the light when leaving the room? It's not doing anybody any good. It's costing money. Turn the light off. A light only illuminating itself is a waste of God's energy. And that goes for people as well as lights in our, in our homes. A light's purpose is to displace darkness, and as he says here, to bring that glory to God. The world, as you know, is full of darkness, and only God's light can fully dispel that darkness. Salt as well does not flavor itself. In fact, when's the last time you ate a handful of salt all by itself? I know little kids eat sugar sometimes, but when did they last eat a handful of salt? They might have, unless they thought it was sugar and learned quickly they were wrong. Um, salt by itself is very unpleasant to eat. So a salt is not a flavor in and of itself, but it is used to flavor other things. It's, used, it's created to be useful in contact with other things. Um, as a seasoning, uh, it flavors food just the right amount, uh, not too little, not too much. One piece of salt by itself can do very little. It takes, usually takes more than one piece of salt to get the job done. And as a, pre as a preservative, it prevents decay. Again, the right amount here is very critical. Not enough will make something taste good, but decay will still take place. And too much salt will preserve something indefinitely, but at that point it's just barely edible anymore because of the overpowering taste of salt. So a salt, as he is suggesting here, is best used in a proper balance. The world is full of decay. Can we as God's church add the correct amount of salt without becoming inedible or unattainable by those around us? Salt also cleanses. It cleans a wound. It prevents infection. Unfortunately, it often stings a bit when it's doing so. And as we say, you know, that's how we know it's working. So salt is going to sting a bit. Um, sometimes the truth hurts a little bit when we know it's working. Salt creates thirst. And salt creates thirst for water. Uh, it does not create thirst for more salt. So do we create a thirst for more of us or a thirst for God? Salt only loses effectiveness or flavor, as he says in verse 13, when it's contaminated by dirt or by a foreign material. So salt in and of itself will always be pure. It will not, it will not uh, lose its qualities unless it is contaminated with other stuff. At that point, 
Obviously, it's very difficult to try and clean. It's largely worthless, must be thrown out, and as he says here, only good to be walked on, or if you live around here, they spread it on the roads. There's mostly dirt, a little bit of salt mixed in. And so this early salt and light was very effective, as we will look at here, moving into the future then. But it was effective because it was pure, it was still uncontaminated. But also the, the cleaner something is, the more it seems to attract the dirt and dust. If you just washed your vehicle, if you made your little girl a white dress, um, you know, they just seem to find the, the closest dirt there possibly is and just draw it to it. And the same way here, it didn't take long before Satan was busy introducing controversy, false teachers who tried to dirty the salt, tried to dim the light. And the question we have is, how is it with us today? Is our salt still pure? Is our light still bright? Are we still making people thirsty? And are we still a light in the darkness? Let's stand for prayer, and let's remain standing for a final song then. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simple, understandable teachings that we have here in the words of Jesus, teachings that tell us how to live godly lives as well as how to be effective influences in the world that we live in. Help us not to be just hearers, but also doers of your word. We ask your blessing as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Ken? Let's sing the chorus, uh, Little Light of Mine. <clears throat> little Light of Mine.